The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. The reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? All right. That was my fault because I was on mute. Okay? Uh, But as you all know, um, there have been several different technical difficulties at times, but that was not a technical difficulty. That was the pastor's technical uh, uh, lack of knowledge. Needless to say, as we continue in in our sermon series through Expose, um, what remember what we are trying to do. We uh, intentionally are stopping or pausing through our sermon series through Isaiah to talk about what God is exposing in our lives and in our hearts. And this morning we are in Matthew chapter uh, nine. And as we are dealing with the narrative of the great physician, it exposes a lot in our hearts. And you heard the passage or the scripture last week where Sir Gregory was preaching and on the, t- on the issue of what exposes our heart the most in bearing our cross and following Jesus. This notion in which we follow Jesus is all throughout the Gospels and we are discipled by him. But sometimes uh, we are some of the worst patients, much like doctors. They oftentimes say doctors are the worst patients to work on. And I believe as sinners saved by grace, we are the worst patients to work on. There was a story of a young man telling, talking about his dad and how he was battling cancer. And when he would walk as a surgeon into his surgical room to operate on someone, he was known as a commander, one that was able to orchestrate everything perfectly. He knew where he needed everybody to be positioned. He knew how to use his tools. He felt comfortable in his space and people moved at his very command. But the day that he became a cancer patient and he had to lay on the table, it was evident as a doctor that he was the worst patient ever because he asked so many questions. 
He was wondering where things were, were and he was asking how the, how the surgery would go. But they had to calm him down to re- help him realize that, sir, you're not the doctor here. You're the patient. I think it's oftentimes us to know that when we are following Jesus, when we are called into discipleship, we are not the Messiah. We are the sick patient. And understanding that we need healing, not just any healing, a restorative healing helps us because our issue oftentimes is that when we look at passages like this, we may not relate. We may not see ourselves relating to the tax collector or relating to the sinner. Sometimes we may see ourselves relating to the disciples or relating to the Pharisees. But how you view passages like this affects your interpretation. This morning, our big idea is this, that Jesus' call to discipleship is a call that leads to restorative healing. Jesus' call to discipleship is one that leads to restorative healing. Many of us have heard of the term restorative justice. I think restorative healing is a biblical ideology that helps us understand that Jesus is trying to, God is trying to heal a people from the very disease that they cannot cure themselves from. Remember, you're not the doctor. You're the patient. You're not the Messiah. You are the child of God. And he is looking to save you. And as we look at this text, I want us to see that unpacking this notion of restorative healing, we have three different movements in the text. I want us to look at the movement as scenes. We have movement number one where Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. Movement number two is where Jesus sits with you. And movement number three, Jesus cures you. When we look at verse nine, we see that already in the surrounding context that Jesus has consistently made it known that he is the one that has authority over absolutely all things. The gospel writer informs us that Jesus begins this part of the narrative after moving out of one narrative that he sees Matthew. He actually sees him. He doesn't just walk past him. And Matthew was standing there and the interaction led to something that was beautiful. But we have to under, we have to ask ourselves why and what did he see in Matthew? Did he see a tax collector and all of the disparaging connotations that comes with being a tax collector? Many of you know this already, but some of you may not. A tax collector, which Matthew was, was a subcontractor, a private subcontractor that worked uh, for the gov- for the Roman government. And oftentimes they would collect taxes on various different things that come in from the port, that, wa- um, that are traveled through the road, etc. in their own local towns, and they would give those taxes to the Roman government. However, tax collectors were seen and perceived as extortioners or robbers. And the reason being is because they would heighten the taxes. It was historians who said toll collectors or tax collectors were in a profession that was over open to dishonesty and oppression to their neighbors. They would line their own pockets with their own, with their heightened taxes because of their own corruption. But the question is, do you see yourself as a tax collector or do you see yourself as a Pharisee? Remember, 
In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus deals with righteousness and self-righteousness. You have one. You have the Pharisee who walks in and is self-righteous as he is worshiping in the temple, saying what he is not like. It is in Matthew um, chapter 27 that, we, that you read this where he says in the parable that the Pharisee who was of the two men two men walks in and he prays this God I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector and then it was the tax collector who said this uh, standing far off he lifts his he, he wouldn't even lift his head up to heaven but he would beat his chest saying to God be merciful to me a sinner you would see the same language used in this narrative but here's what's important the self-righteousness of the Pharisee was displeasing to God but the repentance of the of the tax collector was actually pleasing to God God wants us to live a life of repentance he sees us not through our self-righteousness he sees us through our humility and repentance he sees us because he is our God and the interaction between Matthew and Jesus had to be one powerful one had to be a powerful one who Jesus seen a broken feeble man was one who was in need of healing Jesus saw a person who may have wrestled with the ethical complications of his work or found his soul identity and what he was doing for a living. But I got to ask you the question, how does Jesus see you? How do you believe that Jesus sees you? Does Jesus see a person in need of healing? Does Jesus see an individual that is struggling mentally and psychologically? Does Jesus see a person that is hiding in their trauma and their shame? Does Jesus see a person who is struggling with affirmation? They're looking for approval through their social media. Does Jesus see that 8-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 15-year-old who is struggling right now trying to earn the affirmation or the attention of their parents? Does Jesus see a parent trying to work with their child but feeling like they're failing right now? Does Jesus see a dad who is trying to work and do everything that he can to provide for his family but is not good enough? Does Jesus see a woman who is trying to care for her child, a mother that is trying to do everything she can, but she has a, 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 the, the father is not in the picture and she has all of the weight on her shoulders being a single mother. Does Jesus see a person who is trying to uphold the ethical standards at their job, but it's overwhelming? Does Jesus see you? Because the other question I have to ask are you hiding from him? Do you have the the edemic uh, complex where you are hiding in your shame and your guilt and you're trying to clothe yourself with busyness, clothe yourself with every other thing so that you don't have to be seen by Jesus or that you can hide behind your own victory? See, in our passage, we see that Jesus, in seeing Matthew, his response is one that was, is actually compelling because he doesn't hesitate. 
But we know from the other synoptic gospels that Matthew begins, starts an entire festival. Some scholars say that it is because now he is seen by Jesus and this is a time to celebrate. And so he offers his home to Jesus and the disciples to come for a festive meal and they were going to sit together with many of his friends, tax collectors and sinners, inviting them to recline at the table with Jesus. But you have to admit here that when you see an individual who experiences this level of transformation, you have to ask yourself, what happened in their life to make them change suddenly? I've run into so many different people as a pastor who, in my personal opinion, when they struggled in their faith, a lot of times they did not struggle simply. It wasn't solely because there was an intellectual issue that they only held themselves to debating about theology. And if the if, if the Bible was 100 uh, percent inerrant, if the Bible was infallible, th these were not mere. These weren't the major concerns. A lot of times people have been hurt by the church traumatized by the church, shamed by the church, affected and judged by so many people in the church. And can I tell you something, beloved, that if then the person's sole issue is not intellectual, the issue is the people who are the representatives of the church. A lot of times we have to reconcile there. We have to deal with the issues or the way that people have been affected and traumatized as church by church members or as a church member. And they don't want to have anything to do with the church. I had a brother tell me this week that, you know, I had to deal with my own issues to eventually get around to coming back to the church because of my hurt. And then I listened to several conversations of people saying that I can't stand church people. I can't stand the church. The church. So many people are hypocritical in the church they are affected psychologically they're affected traumatically emotionally in so many different ways they don't want to have anything to do with the church it's not an intellectual debate a lot of times it's a sincere heart issue and as those who are members of a royal priesthood of a holy nation we're an extension of the office of, priest, of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, to know that we are sinners saved by grace, not perf perfect individuals that need to continue to love people, but let people know as we love them we're broken individuals in need of the same grace that we proclaim, in need of the same gospel that we proclaim. And to be honest, I think as a church, we have to say that we're not perfect. We just serve a God that is without blemish. We're exposed in this season as a church. So many people are talking about our position and our role, and we are even putting onus on ourselves on what we ought to do in our role in society at this time and how we can affect society and how we can change things with the gospel. But I want to remind you, those things only happen when we are actively participating in our own local church. 
When I say actively participating, you know, if you're at downtown church right now, I, we are so thankful for those that are community group leaders, those that are deacons and elders, those that serve on our worship teams, those that give their time to meeting with people, those that are serving in our women's ministry and those that are serving around men and those that are serving. We're trying to help with our children. We are so grateful for everyone that is serving in our church. But I also know that we need to call some up to our church. There's a call to action right now. A really practical way that we can serve our community and that we will do so next week is that for in the last few months, we've, we haven't been together forever. But next month, next week on the 20th at 8 p.m., 10 p.m. and now 12 o'clock, we will be meeting outside at the Lovett Jail. In order for that to happen, for us to love our community, we need volunteers at 8, 10, and 11. We need to express and demonstrate a love to a people right now in this pandemic, in this economic crisis, in this racial strife, in this disunity that's happening. We need to give people hope, not a hope that simply comes from that tomorrow will be better. A hope that is eternal, that is in the gospel, that re that results itself to calling people into a discipleship with Jesus Christ that leads to restorative healing. Why? Because Jesus sees your neighbor. And also, we, we are trying, we're doing a food pantry September 30th. We're going to need you. We're going to need volunteers. We're going to need help. Why? Because we want to, we want to care. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in our own city, in our own community, serving and handing out food to those that are in need. There are so many people that are in need right now. And yes, we, I know Zoom fatigue and teachers, y'all are in need. We're praying diligently for you guys. Parents, we know that some of y'all, that y'all got your kids at home and you're in need and we're praying diligently for you guys. Uh, but this doesn't happen just because just because of a certain group. This happens collectively. As a community. So don't hear me just calling up, just saying one group. Hear me saying that as a body together at downtown church, we need you. We need one another. And most of all, like Matthew, we want to invite all of those that are around us, everybody that we know, to hear a gospel. One that will save people where they are, transform people where they are. This is what Jesus, this is what Matthew does. And Jesus, what he does, he sits with the tax collectors and the sinners. He sits. This is the next movement of the text. We see that in verse 10, it says that Jesus, as Jesus reclined at the table, and I've already went through this a couple weeks ago when we think about what it means to recline at the table um, with, within the Greco-Roman area, uh, um, Greco-Roman world. But Jesus reclines or he sits at the table with those that are tax collectors and sinners and his disciples do as well. And he is sitting there reclining, talking to them, laughing, sharing with them, enjoying this festive meal. This wasn't just like a prayer breakfast. This was a bunch of people who didn't know who, what, who didn't know the truth of the gospel. Probably only heard the miracles of what Jesus had done and the power and probably perceived him to be a magician. But what Matthew knew is that as long as he can get his community around people, that maybe the transformative work of Jesus Christ will operate in their lives. See, there are so many must-haves must in our culture. 
or must do's in our culture. I remember when CrossFit was coming around and everybody had to do CrossFit. You know, I remember when Whole30 came around and everybody had to do Whole30. Everybody had to do paleo. Everybody got to do keto. Everybody got to do whatever other diet. Everybody has to do something. And then I remember when F3 came around and everybody had to do F3. Some of y'all are like, what's F3? It's, it's this workout 5.30 in the morning that I don't do. And I remember a brother said, Mike, I will pick you up every single morning so you can come out and do F3. And I said, man, listen, <laughs> you, you come by my house, I'm not going to be there. I'm beastly. That's it. And so as I, as, I, as, as, I, as I think about all of the must-haves, not only is it, is it, is it the F3 or the CrossFit or, 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 or the Paleo or the Keto, it's, it's also the Memphis culture of the must-haves of Cozy Corner, the must-haves of whatever favorite type of barbecue, the must-haves and the must-eats of whatever restaurant or dessert place, wherever you have. We are naturally gifted in telling people about what we desire. And what we do is we want people to sit with us and enjoy those moments with us. We want to invite people into that. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what Matthew does here. Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples into his house. He throws this party. And see, typically, you would have to think to yourself, you got to have a, a, a super nice place in order to invite these people. He did. He was a tax collector. So that meant his house was large enough to host a festive meal and he was wealthy enough to in order to host this meal. And as he did this, he was trying to draw a crowd to people who were social outcasts, seen as robbers, seen as extortioners, seen as the very people that the Pharisees and Sadducees did not want to be around. And see, when you look at this, you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus put himself around people who were seen to be outcasts, who were seen to be robbers, who were seen and perceived to be individuals that were sinners. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus wanted to bring a people to repentance. That's what he demonstrated through the book of Matthew. He wanted people to understand that he was, he had authority over sin and he was the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus himself was demonstrated this to his spectators and to his readers. And now Jesus would sit with those that people felt were unworthy of his presence. Although that they were unworthy of his presence, Jesus still made it clear that he wanted to be amongst the people that were unworthy. He wanted to be amongst the people that needed him the most. He wanted to be amongst the people that needed to be restored through healing. We explore our last movement We'll see why Jesus really sat with them. But I want you to understand, Jesus does not sit with you because of how well off you are. Because how you uphold every single law of his command. He sits with you because you're restless and you need comfort. You're tormented by the things that are going on in your mind each and every day. You're so busy with trying to do the next thing that you don't want to sit with Jesus. You want to do what's next. You're so fatigued by Zoom that you just you don't want to watch church on TV anymore. You want to just do something else. So you tune in and you tune out. 
You're so fatigued with work. You're so fatigued with parenting that you don't want to read or devote yourself to the Bible. You just want to do something that's mindless. You want to watch mindless TV. You want to watch the playoffs every single morning. You want to watch college football because it's on now. You want to watch the NFL because it's on now. you You are fatigued in life, but Jesus is saying that you don't have to be fatigued when it comes to worshiping me. I sit with you to give you comfort, to give you rest. I sit with you in order for your mind not to run constantly with anxiety and run constantly leading you into depression and run constantly thinking about all of the issues and the concerns in your mind. I sit with you so that you may be comfort. I don't want you to think to yourself that you can just look at the next tweet, look at the next IG post, look at the next news outlet, look at whatever thing you can do to entertain yourself not to sit with me sit with Jesus and sometimes that means sit with him sitting with him in silence sitting with him in those deep and dark moments sitting with him when you're crying and tearful to yourself because you're asking why am I going through what I'm going through right now why do I feel like God is not with me but he is with you just cry out to him because he's sitting with you I want to emphasize that he sees you he knows he sits with you he's there and now he can cure you he is a healer the last movement of our text, we have to add, we, we're dealing with when Jesus and his disciples are encountered with these Pharisees. Please note before we look at this that Jesus has already demonstrated once again that he has the power and authority over sickness, disease, and the power of sin and the power to forgive sin. This is why this particular text is, in, is situated right before the narrative where the man, the men lowered down the young man that they that needed healing from Jesus. And Jesus said, rise up and your sins are forgiven. He knew that he not only needed physical healing, but he needed spiritual healing. And Jesus offers that. But Israel, they did not know that for a long time. Now, Israel never was able to realize their real desire. And we see we see this through our study in Isaiah, their real desire for healing from God, restorative healing that would give them a right view of how they ought to worship God and not simply keep a law, keeping the laws what the Pharisees complained about that they felt as if. If Jesus should not be eating with tax collectors and sinners because of the law, the food laws and the cultural boundaries. But it's also important to know that this was a sect of Pharisees who who held to several different things because Pharisees were not just one general sect. There were Pharisees that did not believe the same same thing, sects or groups of Pharisees that did not believe in the same things. And so we have here a group that exercised strict piety to um, the Mosaic law in which that which were the first five books of the Bible in which they were trying to say that Jesus was and his disciples were not upholding Jesus ear hustling hear, heard what they say. He heard what they had said and he responded yet kindly but forcefully letting them know that those who are in need of a physician. I mean those who are well are not in need of a physician but those that are sick those are the ones that need a physician. My neighbor right up the street, just a couple houses up, it's difficult to, for us to watch him. Uh, we, we, he is 80 years old, and he, a few months ago, probably a year ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, 
This was a man who was, you know, uh, well, late 70s. Um, he was chopping lumber. Uh, he was healthy. He was walking around all the time. But now he needs help. But he doesn't want to go to the nursing home. He doesn't want anyone to help him. He doesn't want to go to the doctor. He doesn't want to be cared for by a physician. We've provided meals. Uh, there are neighbors that have sat on his porch to talk to him, all of which he has refused and been reluctant to every counsel that's been around him. I see a similar demeanor when it comes to the Pharisees. Individuals who are reluctant to recognizing that Jesus is the one who's the physician. And you know this because it is uh, it is said in Matthew 23, 23, where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And you and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and, f- and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The the importance of understanding that is that the Pharisees see themselves as ones that are upholding the law, but cannot see those that are in need of Jesus Christ or see their own need for care, see their own need for the great physician. I know what you're saying. Mike, what does that have to do with me? Because if you're interpreting yourself as a Pharisee, you have to ask yourself, do you recognize your need? Do you recognize that you need the cure? Or do you feel as if you're morally upholding a law? Do you feel as if you've been you've kept yourself sexually pure? You've done you haven't cheated in anybody. You've tried your best to keep reading your Bible. Have you done all of the nominal Christian things? You feel like you don't necessarily relate to that. Or are you the one that relates to that? that being sick. Where Jesus knows that you cannot recognize your own illness, nor can you diagnose your own self. And he is the one that, unlike any other doctor, he has all of the research and the practice to understand how to, how to operate on you. I'm telling you right now that you are sick and God knows it. He knows your struggle with feeling inadequate and how you constantly allowed it to play out in your spiritual life. He knows your struggle with infertility. Right now, he knows your struggle with the job that you're working in. He knows your struggle with your singleness and how you are contemplating on uh, just just living with that other person or just giving yourself over to that person. You know, he knows how you are sick with greed. He knows how you are trying to find your own comfort and control within yourself. He knows that you are constantly battling the struggle of whether you're a good mom or a good dad or, 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 you're, or you've never been able to perceive God as a good father because of your relationship with your parents. He knows how you have every day dealt with the pain of temptation of giving up on life, giving up on your marriage, giving up on absolutely everything. God knows but God doesn't say I want you just to get better. He says I'm the cure and what he tells the Pharisees is, the Pharisees here I want you to go and learn about mercy that I, des- that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does he mean? See if you know that he's referencing Hosea 6 and 6 you would realize that what God is actually saying here is that 
He deserves a mercy that's compassionate. Mercy in Isaiah 6, chapter 6, actually verse 6 in the Hebrew is referring to the covenant loyalty that, that, uh, that the people of God, that Israel has with God and God has with Israel. But here God is saying the mercy is not simply just a covenant loyalty. It is also a mercy that's compassionate. That sees you, knows you, and offers the cure to you. Are you tracking with me this morning? You need a cure. You need help. You are not okay, and I know you are not. God knows you aren't. Have you ever went to the doctor and you said to the doctor that as he's pressed on certain parts of your body, uh, that and when he asks you the question, does this hurt? Uh, how about this? And you say, oh, no, doctor, ah. But that hurt. And then the doctor begins to uh, evaluate whether the pain, what level the pain is on. And he pushes harder just for the right sensitivity. So you may know whether to say it's a 10 or it's a five uh, on the scale. And then he says, I want to do more tests. And it's not supposed to hurt. I want to tell you. That as a pastor. Preaching to people that are sick and hurting and broken, filled with discomfort and hearing the cries in the context of knowing that Jesus has a cure. I want to let you know this morning that whatever is pressing and wherever it hurts, that Jesus has the cure. That he sees you. He sits with you. And my friend, he is the great physician, therefore he has the cure for you. Remember that Jesus' discipleship, it leads to restorative healing. It doesn't simply mean that you operate on yourself to do better. You're not the doctor. You're the patient. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your cross and what you've done for us. We ask that you continue to meet us where we are. And that we are reminded that what what we need to be called into is one thing that helps us to realize that we are exposed in our illness and that Jesus sees us. He sits with us, sits with us and he offers a cure to us and help us to walk in that and to consistently be restored in our healing, to see Jesus more clearly and to have more intimate relationship with him. For we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All God's people said together, amen. Let us continue our worship as we give uh, to Jesus in our offering. Uh, you can text this number set, uh, in downtown church, all lowercase, 73256. Downtown church, all lowercase, 73256. Let us continue to worship God.